Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to those of you who have reached out in the last couple of weeks with kind words about the podcast. And special thanks to Jane Hiley, a comparative government and politics teacher out in Pennsylvania, for her support of this podcast. Jane was kind enough to go over to buymeacoffee.com slash Kogopod to contribute to this project. For this is, in fact, a listener-supported podcast, so any contributions you could make to keep this thing going will be greatly appreciated. So thank you, Jane Hiley. Hope you have a great school year. And again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash Kogopod. Every little bit helps, my friends. Every little bit helps. Now today I'm excited to share with you my conversation with a friend of mine here in Berlin, Germany. His name is Hugh Williamson and he is the director of the Europe and Central Asia division of Human Rights Watch. In this episode, Hugh and I cover a lot of ground. We talk a lot about his work as the director of Human Rights Watch. We talk about how Human Rights Watch is able to bring authoritarian regimes to the table and to face the facts, to face the charges being put to them in some cases. Uh, we also explore what it's like to fly to a place like Belarus or to Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan to sit across a table from a delegation of government representatives from some nefarious authoritarian regime that brazenly violates human rights. In fact, these regimes violate the very terms of the treaties that they themselves have willingly signed. So we talk about what it's like to sit down at that table. We talk about the challenges of trying to connect to seek offense of these authoritarian regimes and how this is, in some cases, desperately difficult work. We also discuss how Hugh and the team that he directs I mean, there's no other way to put it, like how they grapple with their trauma. I mean, these people are on the front lines. They're not just doom scrolling through the news. They're on the ground researching and reporting, having desperately difficult conversations, seeing things that they can't unsee, and just coming face to face with brazen violations of human rights and human dignity. It's not an easy conversation, save for the fact that Hugh is just such a great guy to talk with. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I hope you learn a lot from it. I hope you find meaning and value in it. I know I certainly did. So please join me in conversation with my friend, Hugh Williamson. Hugh Williamson, welcome to the podcast. How do you describe what you do? Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm the a director of a team within Human Rights Watch. And the Human Rights Watch is an international human rights organization. And my job is to lead that team of about 30 people. Um, and that team works on human rights issues in Europe, in the former Soviet Union, so countries like Russia, Ukraine, Central Asia, Belarus, and Turkey, and the Balkans as well. 
I was thinking, I think it's a, a good way of thinking about, you know, what I do in my job is, is to take one of the descriptions that Human Rights Watch uses to describe our work. And because my job involves doing, in a sense, this, um, this description. And the description is what we do is investigate, expose, and change. Those three things is what Human Rights Watch tries to do in the field of human rights. We investigate, and that means the team of people I work with go to places like in Ukraine at the moment, or go to places like Turkey or Europe's borders, investigating things like you know deaths at sea or you know, bomb attacks in Ukraine um, or human rights abuses in Turkey. They're gathering information, they're interviewing people, they're writing reports about what they do. And my job is to lead them, to manage them, to coach them in doing their work. Um, secondly, expose. That really means taking that report, um, making sure that it's as strong and as influential, as powerful as it can be. Making sure it's written well, making sure the findings are watertight, making sure it's published in a way which makes it interesting and attractive to the media and which is also then powerful with the people we're trying to influence, which is ultimately the governments who are doing the human rights abuses. So that's the exposed part. Um, and I'm working with my team in doing that. I'm working with other people in Human Rights Watch, uh, the communications team and other people. And then there's the change part. And that's where we take this information, which we've investigated and we've published, we've exposed the facts, we try and change the view or the position of the government involved by meeting with them, by writing to them, by lobbying them, by doing advocacy with them, as we call it. And I'm often in those meetings and I'm with my team strategizing about how to do that. So those three things, really, investigate, expose and change are the sort of the bread and butter, the heart of what I do every day at Human Rights Watch. Well, Hugh, I am thoroughly excited to get into all three of those components, the investigation, the expose, and, and the change. But before we do, if you would be so kind, I'm deeply curious, how did you get on this particular professional path? I've been on two paths in my career. I'm 59 now, and my career has been a mixture of two things. And I've, when I think about it, it's because I have two passions in a way. One is for social justice, and I'm an activist at heart. I've been I've worked for campaign organisations, non-governmental organisations for a big chunk of my life. It, it drives me in my profession. It drives me in my life, in other activities I do as well as a volunteer and so on. On the other, the other passion is 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 journalism, is writing. I love to write. I love to. I love the idea of being a journalist. I love the practice of being a journalist. I love the sort of the craft of being a journalist. So my career, my life has been a mixture in terms of my career between being a journalist. I was a journalist for 20 years. I worked for the Financial Times. I worked for Deutsche Welle. I was a freelance journalist. I still work as a journalist as well. Um, I still work in Human Rights Watch. I write a lot. Uh, but also, um, I'm pulled back and forwards between journalism and, and professionally working for non-governmental organizations. And in my mid to late 40s, I realized I really want, I was working for the Financial Times, wonderful paper, really, really good job. But I thought this isn't really what I want to do with the rest of my career. I felt I needed to do something which I feel passionate about and I feel 
is at the heart of what motivates me in my sort of feeling of wanting to achieve social justice. And I decided to look for for other work, for work back in the in the the for an NGO. I'd worked for NGOs earlier in my career, as I mentioned, on labor rights. I would work in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Um, and I decided to work in the field of human rights. And I did that because human rights has a as a legal grounding, universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted in 1948 by the United Nations, is an international framework of law which governments sign up to. And then they have an obligation to fulfill that. And I find that a very useful framing for, for work of an organization like mine, because it gives you a it gives you a reason to go to those governments and say, look, we have evidence that you're not doing what you've promised to do. Please change. Yeah. And that's why I, for this latter part of my career, I chose the human rights field. Uh, and that's where I am now. I've been with Human Rights Watch for about 12 years, and I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm really pleased that you're doing this work, and I'm really pleased that you're willing to share some of that work with me. So, man, let's just dive right into it. You know, part of what you try to do, part of what you need to do, is to bring authoritarian regimes to the table with Human Rights Watch. I'm hoping maybe I could get you to walk me through the process that you and your team go through to bring authoritarian regimes to the table to begin or to further a discussion. Sure. That's a good question because it, it does in a way, show the, the trajectory, the path of a piece of research, a piece of work from the beginning to the end. Um, uh, let, me th let me take you through an example. It might be the easiest thing to do. Um, early this year, we published a big report about Central Asia. Now, Central Asia is not a particularly well-known area of the world. It doesn't get a lot of international attention, but it's an area of where there's severe human rights abuses. Just, you know, a part of the former Soviet Union, they were all Soviet republics until the early 1990s, including two countries, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. These countries had a military conflict last September. About 50 people were killed, at least hundreds were injured. A, a very severe conflict. And we did a big investigation. We were probably the organization which did the most detailed investigation of what happened during that conflict. You might have heard of war crimes, you know, in the context of Ukraine, but there were also, we thought, war crimes going on in this conflict as well, which is pretty unusual in this region because it, it doesn't often come to sort of military clashes. But that means both countries broke the rules of war because there are particular rules of war about the way you should protect civilians, protect prisoners of war and that sort of thing. So we thought it was necessary to investigate this. So... You know, my team was in the field on in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. We work with others in Human Rights Watch who are experts in doing this sort of research in crisis regions. We gathered all the, the information um, and we started putting it together. And that gets to your question of how we get to the situation of sitting at the table with an authoritarian regime. Both of these are both author very authoritarian governments, Tajikistan has never had free and fair elections since independence 30 years ago. Kyrgyzstan's a little bit better. It has a, a semi-free parliament um, and so on. 
So the first thing we do is make sure that the research is watertight, is absolutely convincing and based on on enough evidence to make the case for the government has committed these war crimes or other human rights abuses. Um, our reputation as human rights watch really depends on getting the the research right and it being substantial and convincing. That means we 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 gather the evidence, but and we also talk with other experts in human rights watch. We make sure that other experts, for instance, the team which works on these crucial crises and works on um, you know, the particular area of international law which deals with war crimes, reviews this work. We also ask our legal team. Human Rights Watch has a, a, a team of senior human rights lawyers that would review all, all the work we do. They read it, they pull it apart. They say, well, that's not convincing enough. What other evidence do you have? So we, we put it together. We've also, for this report and otherwise, we've also used lots of what you might call new technology to, to, to provide, to gather the evidence. We've analyzed many social media videos. We've made sure they're, they're, they're accurate and they really did show what they believe to show what happened during this conflict where dozens of people were killed. We use satellite imagery and so on. Those all had to be put into the report and, and the visual presentations and so on. So that's the first part, we're getting the research right before we even get into the room with the governments. Of course, we ask the governments for their views on it as well. It's important to write to them and say, we're doing this research, but we want to know what you think about it, what, what you believe your troops did, your military um, forces did in this conflict last September. How did they behave? Are you doing anything to investigate it? So we make sure we give them sufficient time to respond. That's important for credibility as well, because if they if they reject our findings, we can and they say, well, why didn't you ask us? We can say, well, we did ask you. We want, you know, we wanted your view. You didn't respond, but you had the opportunity. So we give them lots of time to respond. And the third element we do before we get into the room is what we would call advocacy research, which means we look at the the, the frame of mind of both of the governments, in this case, two governments, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and we think about what the ways we could try to persuade them to change their positions, to, to improve how they would fight such a conflict in future. Now, what that might that be? That might be that they are particularly sensitive to their international reputation, that if we criticize them strongly, they may be ready to change change things because they don't want to be criticized by an international human rights group. They want to be seen to be an, a country which upholds human rights standards. Um, it might be because they want more economic investment, uh, foreign investment, and they know that we'll be talking to the United States or the European Union, and that could influence you know, the, those governments' position, relationship with these countries. So they might be that. It might also be because they... They are indeed negotiating a new, a new partnership agreement with something like the European Union or the United States, and that they might have that in the back of their mind that if they don't respond in a sort of open way to our findings and talk, then that might impact their relationship with partners which are very influential and important, have lots of money, because we will also be doing advocacy research with other governments, you know, governments which have a a say, a stake in this region, particularly ones obviously which uphold human rights, like Germany, like the United Kingdom, like the United States, and the European Union, and so on. So those are the three things we would do even before we get into the room. 
we would get the, make sure the research is right, we would ask the governments for their views, and we would do advocacy research. So first of all, Hugh, thank you so much for that thorough response. It gave me a lot to chew on. And secondly, I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to ask you a brief question about your feelings. Okay. <laughs> My feelings. Uh-huh. Sure. I wonder what it feels like when, after you've done your due diligence, the research is right and watertight, mm. right? You've reached out to the regime or regimes in question. You've, you've sought to persuade them and you've managed to get a table for Human Rights Watch to talk to a government. And your team has navigated this successfully and you're about to board a flight to, to Belarus or to Tajikistan. What does it feel like to prep for, board and sit down on that flight? That's a good question, Daniel. Do you feel anticipation? You feel excitement perhaps because you've done a lot of preparatory work? Um, you feel, if you're well prepared, you feel ready. And that's a, that's a good feeling to have. You feel proud of the work you've, I feel proud of the work that my team have done. And I feel proud to be able to represent them and lead them in a sense in doing that. But often in these, in these countries, you of you know, you really, really don't know what's going to happen. And then when I went to Tajikistan and to Kyrgyzstan, just back in April, I really did not know what was going to happen. It could have been the case that they were going to react so strongly that they would have, you know, perhaps not put me in prison, but, but certainly driven our team who, who were based in Kyrgyzstan out of the country and, you know, put sanctions and effectively on the way Human Rights Watch works in the country. It could have been so, the, the reaction could have been very strong. So you often, it's a very unpredictable situation. So you have to be ready for that. And that, that makes you nervous. That makes you you know, um, on edge, I would say. So I go into that, I sit on the plane with a mixture of feeling on edge and a mixture of pride, of, you know, for the work that we've prepared for this trip. I hope there's a mixture of gin and tonic also, because <laughs> it sounds utterly unnerving, my friend. I, I, I have a sense for what it might feel like. You don't tend to fly alone. You fly usually with your team, Yeah. With one or two from my team, yeah. It's usually there, maybe there's two or three people in the delegation, interpreters as well. But we usually meet those when we get there, and so on. Yeah. So there's usually two or three people in the Human Rights Watch team in such a in such a sort of meetings with governments. Yeah. Okay, so it's one or two or three people that you're flying with. There's one or two or three people from Human Rights Watch that you're meeting there. There's a couple of interpreters. Who else is at the table with you? Should you have the opportunity to sit down with representatives from a regime in question? On, on, on my side of the table, as it were, and it is indeed nearly always literally a big table and you sit very formally us on one side, them on the other side. I always sit next. I sit, always sit opposite the most senior person on the other side of the table, the minister or the deputy prime minister or whatever, or the prime minister. You know, and we formally sit there and we shake hands and we 
give a little exchange. So on my side of the table, that will be it. Me, my team, the specialists usually are there who've done the research. I open the meeting and then pass the word to the specialist to present the findings. The interpreter, maybe another aide I have with me who travels with me, who knows the country very well, who can help navigate, in a sense, these difficult meetings and you know, be also responsible for the logistics. On the other side, then, there's the minister, there's the some of his or her aides, interpreter as well. Not on their side, although the, normally the interpretation is is done by the team we bring, and they usually speak in, in the local language, in Russian or whatever. So th- those are the people, that's the constellation of people in the room. Yeah. I hope I can get you to paint two different pictures for me. Okay. One is a greeting in the meeting room that goes about as well as can be expected. And the other is a greeting in this meeting room where you know this is going to be an uphill climb or you have reason to believe this is going to be an uphill climb. Sure, there's a good question, Daniel. The version where the greeting is very frosty um, happened when we were in Kyrgyzstan in April and we were presenting our findings to the security services. That's the sort of the the secret services, in a way, of, of Kyrgyzstan. In these sorts of countries, these organizations have very much, have a lot of power. They're almost as powerful as the president. We sat across from the head of the security, the deputy head of the security services, and he basically shouted at us. I think he was also trying to impress his own delegation by being strong and tough and macho and, you know, didn't want to be, in any sense, lectured to by this human rights organization. So he hardly let us, even at the beginning in the greeting, he hardly let us have a word in edgeways, you know. That's the sort of, that's one version of the hostile meeting. Another version is a very thin welcome and a sort of, you know, waiting for us to speak, sort of saying, welcome, thank you, you know, what do you want to tell us? <laughs> that's another version of the hostile frame frame of mind. The more open one is obviously... Them clearly at the beginning trying to make an effort to sort of say, well, you know, things are not so bad or, of course, we're very concerned about the findings you're going to bring to us. We're doing as much as we can about them and so on. Some signals coming from them within the first five minutes. that this is going to be on the surface an easier meeting. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to change, do anything about it, but they've decided to to be seen to be open to what Human Rights Watch is going to say. Thank you. I, I, I have a million questions just about the greeting alone, but I, I, I do <laughs> want to respect your time. I, I guess I have what I fear might be a very much on-the-nose question, but here I go. Go for I, it. I just wonder like, how you negotiate with authoritarian regimes and their representatives like how do you do that work other than just like stealing your nerves and hoping for the best like Mm. what does it take to do that well and and maybe like where do you sometimes feel like you could do better i mean i suppose that the sort of the the, the things I've learned about how to do these things are sort of, you have to get these things right. You have to try to to remain sort of calm and collected in the meeting and not get too flustered or emotional. It doesn't help. 
if you do that, if you sort of rise to them being emotional or attacking you, it doesn't help sort of, you know, with your presentation or with the credibility of Human Rights Watch. We need to maintain a sort of professional, calm approach. Um, it's always good to try to get across the fact that we're a global organization and we, what we're standing up for human rights standards, which are also global and universal, you know, and that these governments have signed up to these things. You know, it's difficult for them to reject that because it's just a fact that governments have, you know, signed up to children's rights and women's rights and not to torture people and not to put people in prison unless there's a reason to do so and that sort of thing. So, you know, those are some of the basics. And then I would, then I think about this, what I mentioned earlier about sort of trying to remember what's in it for them, what, why, what will try to move them in, in recognizing, aha, there could actually be some value for us in doing what they want us to do. You know, why, you know, we will look good in, inter in the international community, for instance, if we do change the practice of the military, which enables us to go and use a drone and bomb the other side of the border. We shouldn't do that anymore because it, we look pretty bad. So if we can expose that, we can show that and sort of say, well, we'll give you a bit of praise if you actually stop doing that. You know, you'll get a bit of credibility in the international community if you stop doing that. That's a, that's a sort of putting ourselves in their shoes. Um, but in, you know, in the end, it's sort of, we can do as much as we can, you know, and it's, it's sort of, it's not, obviously, it's only modestly in our hands what we can persuade them to do. And that's why we also have to talk with allies and get them to also use some influence on the governments we're talking to. Often when we're on these trips, we, we go and visit the United Nations offices, we go and talk to the ambassador from the United States or from Germany and things, and we discuss our, present our findings to them, and we encourage them to also go to the government and say, you know, make these changes, do, improve your human rights record. It's in your interest to do so. You might get that agreement with the United States or the EU if you do so. So, you know, how things can go wrong, you know, if you misread the room, if you don't read the sort of the, the perspective of where they're coming from or you, yeah, you miss an aspect of what's on their minds, um, you know, or simply the authoritarian government is simply absolutely not interested and, and they've given you a bit of time, but they also want to use that opportunity just to criticize you and just to sort of slam you. I remember a meeting in Uzbekistan about nine years ago where we presented a report to them about political prisoners. There used to be dozens and dozens of political prisoners in Uzbekistan. And the deputy minister on the other side of the table just stood up and shouted and shouted and said, you're never going to come back here again. This is the end of Human Rights Watch in Uzbekistan when you make such reports. You know, this is outlandish. How can you compare us with either other countries and so on and so forth? A real tirade he gave us. And that's, you know, we couldn't do much about that, but it's obviously it's not, not a pleasant thing to sit through. Um, you know, I don't know if there was a different way. I'm not sure there was a different way of approaching that meeting, but obviously to to leave the meeting having been shouted at, you would hope there might be a different way of trying to get through to that person. Yeah. So those are a couple of different thoughts on that aspect, yeah. No, I appreciate those thoughts. I find myself, as you're describing that, wondering whether or the degree to which you feel like to do the work you do 
you need to, on some level, be able to connect with what I'm going to call tyrants and gangsters. Do you need to be able to connect to them in order to persuade them or somehow move them? That's a good question because it's also something we tussle with within Human Rights Watch. I tend to be somebody who does try to connect with them and try to build up a rapport with them, you know, and try to, you know, a little bit of small talk, a little bit of sort of understanding where they've come from, what their background is. I try also to always to do a bit of research on the background of people I'm meeting just to sort of see if there's a connection. Maybe they've studied somewhere that I've been to or I've also studied or, you know, or some some connection, something to to bring us together, to find some a little bit of common ground. Um, the substance is the important thing. The, 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 the findings we're talking about, the issues of human rights are the important thing. So small talk and connection only takes you so far, you know. And But I think it's actually pretty important because in the end, it is people who make these decisions. And if they feel connected to Human Rights Watch, to you know, and they they see us as being reasonable people, um, people who, you know, they may, you know, we're on the other side of the table, but nevertheless, we are reasonable and open for a conversation. I think it could tip the balance on some occasions for them to be a little bit more open and come out of the room and say, these people were not so bad after all. They understand a little bit about where we're coming from. That guy was sort of open and he was friendly. You know, let's take this a bit seriously. Let's see what we can do about what they've said. You know, I think there's a possibility with those personal connections that you can push it in that direction. Now, having lived in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, for a hot moment myself, <laughs> I recall quite fondly how generous and kind and welcoming people were there. It's certainly part of the culture, the habits, the manners, the traditions. Sure. They'll empty their fridge out onto the table for you nine times out of 10. And I say that to ask this, do you sometimes feel like you're getting the treatment, right? They're giving you all of the pomp and circumstance, but you're not going to get any of the substance and you just kind of have to like find a way to move forward. Like, does that happen sometimes? Oh, yeah. I mean, let's take the example of Uzbekistan. It's actually a really good example because, you know, um, there was a, a really, a really authoritarian you know, they're all, it's a very authoritarian country, but until 2016, Islam Karimov was a absolute, you know, brutal leader of the country, tolerated absolutely no dissent. Yeah, in political science terms, uh, I believe he's called, like, just technically speaking, a total piece of shit. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you that's for me to say, um, not you. Exactly. He died, and then, then Shavkat Mirza Yoyev, the new president, took over. And the country was in absolutely dire state, you know, no foreign investment, pariah state, basically, isolated within the region. And he knew he had to do something about it. 
currency was was terrible and so on. So tried to reform the economy, tried to get foreign investment. And one of the things they did is they wanted to, they realized they had to improve their human rights, at least the, the image of human rights in the country. And one way they did it was by, um, you know, we, we wanted to go there and, and enabling us to go there. Yeah. So I went there about a year after he took power. And even though they'd given us like visas to go there, it was really, really unpredictable what was going to happen. It was just like that feeling I had on the plane I talked about earlier, pride, but also anxiety. Yeah? And I remember being in the very first meeting with the human rights minister of Uzbekistan and really not knowing what what was going to come out of his mouth. And it's always a bit more exciting because I don't speak Russian. So you, you come through the interpreter, he says a long sentence, and then you're literally waiting beginning of the meeting for the interpreter to tell you which direction the meeting is going to go in. <laughs> anyway, it went in a relatively positive direction. They showed their openness you know, to us in a sense. And then it was a whole series of pomp and ceremony. You know, This dinner here, this fancy meeting there, we had a meeting with the foreign minister, we had photo opportunities and so on. And you really have to sort of handle that. And, you know, we did make a difference going there and we did manage to... to you know, there were some, some important issues we talked about and then did change their human rights policy. They released political prisoners. They did some other important things. But it was all wrapped up in this this ceremony. And we, you have to really try, basically, you know, to not smile too much on the photos. You have to sort of try to be in control. Otherwise, you are swept, swept away with it and you're used by their propaganda. There's, very, there's a strong chance in these situations to be instrumentalized by them for their own public and for the international community in the way they broadcast the images. So you have to really be, you know, be ready and be attentive to this danger of being instrumentalized in such a situation. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a judo match. But judo is, by the very nature of the sport, a one-on-one -on -one event. Mm. You've been speaking in terms of we. And I want to, perhaps at this point, if you're willing, kind of get a sense of who we are, because uh, I don't think you're using the royal we in this case. <laughs> you have this team with whom you work, and I would love to hear about your team. Sure. My team is... Uh... Uh, a wonderful bunch of people. Um, I did a little count before the program um, in terms of their backgrounds. We have 17 different nationalities in my team of about 30 people. That's a pretty impressive number, I think. Also 16 or 17 different languages as well spoken by my team, all the way from Russian to Bulgarian, Greek, Turkish, Indian languages, Hungarian, Azerbaijan, Armenia, German, all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, people living in different parts of the region. So a few live in the States, but most of them live in Europe or in the former Soviet Union or in Turkey. Uh, many more women than men. There's only there's six men in my team and about 24 women. In general, in Human Rights Watch, it's an it's a organization with many more women than men. It's a field where women seem more drawn to, more passionate about, which is interesting and important and great. It's a brilliant women-led organization. Our new um, executive director, Tarana Hassan, is, a, is a, a human rights activist, come up through the ranks, work for Human Rights Watch and for Amnesty International. Varying ages, my team, from sort of late 20s, early 30s, 
um, up to myself, sort of late 50s, 60s. So a, a wide range of, of backgrounds, uh, nationalities, languages. And lo- also locations as well. I mean, we're very virtual, our team. We, we come together once a year, um, but otherwise we are spread over many different time zones. Um, as I said, people, some based in New York, other people based in Central Asia, which is, you know, a good many hours east of here, of, of Berlin. So, you know, we're always finding ways to communicate and connect with each other in ways which are not too antisocial for one or for the other. Um, but also trying to connect and, and keep together and, and be a unit, be a team, even though we work on a, a really wide range of issues, even within my team. You know, I have a, a team member who's based in Spain who works on poverty issues in Europe, you know, on the human right to an adequate standard of living. He asks the questions every day, why are so many people suffering food poverty? Why do they have to go to food banks? And that should, that's a human rights abuse. We have people working in Turkey on women's rights, domestic violence. We have people working in Italy and Hungary on um, on issues around refugee rights and the awful condition of, you know, the situation with judges and media freedom and LGBT rights in Hungary and Poland and things like that. And then we have people in Ukraine in a war zone, you know, working on, you know, Russian missile attacks on destruction of towns and cities in Ukraine. So a whole range of issues that is my job to try and find connections and keep people safe, but also connected with each other within the organization. So Hugh, you know me, always doing my due diligence. Uh Uh, I went to the website and learned that you are the uh, director. That's me. Of the Europe and Central Asia division. I want to get into that directorship role. That's what you do. Um, so I think I have kind of a specific question about this one aspect of your job. You have to recruit people. Mm. You have to hire them. There's a process there. And then you have to onboard them to Human Rights Watch. Could I get you to talk as much as you're willing to about the mechanics of recruiting, hiring, and onboarding people to Human Rights Watch? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a thing I regularly do. We have a, you know, a reasonable turnover of staff. A lot of the staff do stay for quite a long time, but we're often recruiting for new posts and so on. Um, Can I pause you there really quick sure. just to get a sense of like, on average, I know this isn't easy, but on average, how long do people tend to stay with you at Human Rights Watch? Uh, in my team, um, varies with the posts. We have we have more junior posts, what we call associates, who are the staff who support other teams. So they do some of the logistics, they do some organizational stuff, they very involved in publishing on things on the website managing the back end of, of the website and so on. They stay for two or three years usually. There's their staff who often just out of university, building their career. Researchers, it really varies. Some researchers stay for a good number of years. Other ones move on after three or four years. There's quite a lot of change within human rights organizations. Staff often go to Amnesty International or come back from Amnesty to Human Rights Watch, and that's often a path for for the researchers who are the, the, the heart and soul of my division. 
and then there's um, managers, senior managers, and so on. They tend to stay for a long time. I think my my senior management team of most of them have been in Human Rights Watch for five or ten years, if not longer. Okay. So yeah, so it it it, it, it it's a wide range. How do you hire people? Um, traditional ways we postings on the websites. We use job boards in. Um, uh, different in different places, different media. Sometimes do traditional adverts, or advertising in in relevant media in the states or in Europe or in in Britain and so on. Um, word of mouth, social media. I'm always on social media on Twitter, sharing job postings and so on. We're obviously you know putting a big emphasis, increasing the last few years on on diversity as well, and making sure our our postings are available. To different communities and we try to reach out to minority communities to make sure that that they also have information about the fact that human rights watch is recruiting yeah so often certainly dozens often hundreds and hundreds of people apply for posts in my division in the europe and central asia division or in other parts of human rights watch so it's quite a big task to whittle that down to a short list we use obviously software to manage the postings, the associates I mentioned are often involved in in screening applications. People send in a CV, they do a covering letter, and we whittle it down to a, a long list, as we call it, of about 15, 20 people, which I would then look at with my team. I would recruit a, um, I would organize a recruitment panel of people, and they would be the ones who vet this down. We would normally do a first round of interviews with about 10 people. Um, either one-on-one in, one in-person interviews or live interviews, or often we nowadays use video technology and we send people a link and we get them to present themselves for about 30 minutes or so with a, 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 a questions which are standardized and set to them and they get it on, on screen, as it were, and they send the link back with the videos and we assess their performance on that. And then we move to a final round of interviews where we often usually invite other people from other divisions of Human Rights Watch, maybe somebody from the advocacy team, from the communications team, to join us um, in having those final interviews. Candidates usually also do a written test um, as well as doing a, you know, a full panel interview. So that's the sort of standard procedure we have in Human Rights Watch. And let's say you found a candidate that you're very pleased with, you offer them the post, there's perhaps some negotiation around timing, salary, et cetera, whatever. And they're in, you got them. Mm. You're pleased to have them. How do you get them up to speed, ready to hit the ground running? Before I answer that, Daniel, let me add an extra point about the sort of recruitment process. I think it might be interesting for listeners, particularly those who are building their career or thinking about what they might want to do in the early part of their career. Because I'm, I'm often struck by how some candidates are really well informed and they're really on the ball in their applications. Um, others are really not. And, you know, Many candidates have not really read the job description. They've not really been to the website. They don't really have much idea what Human Rights Watch does. And it shows in applications. So 
And that's a little frustrating. Obviously, I get frustrated in the process from, from our side, but for them as well, I feel for them that they sort of, if they put a little bit of effort into it, then then, then they really missed the mark and they could have done a lot better. So I really feel it's important to do a bit of homework when you're making an application if you're serious about it. Yeah. Um, to to make a good impression, it's worth working out what exactly the organization is you're applying for and what the post is and you know what uh, qualifications and qualities are really needed for doing it and also for doing some homework in sense of networking and trying to find out what it's like to work for Human Rights Watch. Ask people, try and make connections, try and find people who might have some experience in this field. You know, all these things really help in, in, in building up an idea of, of presenting yourself as a credible candidate for, for being selected. This is good advice. Thanks for thanks for saying that. So let's to your question. Yeah. So onboarding is a you know it's also a, it's a time consuming process, but it's a really good process because you're getting to know the candidate, you're getting to the, the successful candidate. Day one is often sort of technology stuff, logistics, going through paperwork, meeting different people from the organization, from the human resources team, going into the into the first few days is having conversations with myself, welcoming, getting to know the team, going to a team meetings and so on, understanding how Human Rights Watch works. You know, it's a, it's a like most organizations, it's a complicated organization inside. There's different teams, different processes, which are, you need to get yourself, get your head around. Um, we try to pace it. We try not to rush it too much, give people space. We suggest you know, people that it's good for them to have conversations with from different parts of the organization just to familiarize themselves. There's a mentoring scheme in Human Rights Watch. So new staff are often paired up with more established staff who've been here for some time who can give them tips and help in getting familiar. So peer mentoring. So if you're a researcher, you might be matched with another researcher from a different part of the organization, but who's doing the same job, basically. So... um those are some of the ways we do onboarding. And then after a few weeks or after a few months, if they're a researcher, they will be starting doing their first research project, which where they would be accompanied by another more experienced research in going to the area where they do their research, and they would be doing that together. Before that, where they would be doing some trainings. There's all sorts of in-person trainings in Human Rights Watch about how about our research methodology, how we talk to victims and survivors of human rights abuses, what sensitive language we use, how we present ourselves, how we introduce ourselves, what our what sort of ethical standards are. Those are all training sessions which people go through before they go on their first research mission, as we call it. So you have, like you said, uh, new staff. You have people who have been around for a couple of years and you have people who have really made a career out of it. Yeah. And all of them and all of us together are living in an age that I'm going to loosely call distracted and disconnected. We're all sort of toggling Mm. literally and metaphorically, but the work that you do and the work that your team does is so critically important that it really demands connection and focus and i find myself wondering like in your capacity as the director how do you keep your team focused on 
very difficult work. How do you keep them connected so that the organization is flowing and people are working together as one? Mm. Like to be blunt about it, like you're the director. How do you direct this thing? You know, <laughs> it, it varies. You know, I'm a, I'm a director who tries to tries to sort of support staff to 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 cheerlead for them, for them to take center stage, for them to be the the stars in a sense. I try to help push them forward. It's a, it's a it's a good trait of Human Rights Watch, by the way, that it's the you know the researchers on country X or topic Y, the researcher on Brazil or the researcher on children's rights is the expert and the person who would be presented to the media or would go into the meeting with the government and talk about their expertise. As I said, they're in my delegation. So one way of keeping them connected and sort of motivated is to do that, to push them forward and say, you are the expert. You're the one who has the knowledge. You've done this research. Take center stage. Present it internally or present it externally. Do that media interview. I'm not going to take it and do it. You do it, you know. So I want to motivate them by recognizing that they are a valuable member of the team. That's a really important sort of thing because, indeed, many of my team work on their own. They're isolated. Uh, it's hard work. It's hard to keep that motivation up. You're working with very difficult material, as you said. You've, you've been on a research mission. You've got your notebooks full and your laptop full of, of notes, of testimonies, which is pretty galling stuff, getting down to writing that up. You know, it's tough. Yeah, also, you know, as I said, time zones are a problem. So people are, you know, waking up and while others are going to sleep and vice versa. So it's a sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to keep those connections going, but sort of being a cheerleader for the team, finding common ground, you know, every couple of weeks we have staff meetings and we find common ground and issues to talk about. We obviously create space for people to raise concerns about issues in the organization. Um, we cheerlead for each other in those meetings as well. So if, if one of my colleagues just published a new report about Belarus or about um, as I said, poverty in Spain, then that person would present and we would listen and we would hear and we would congratulate. We would find common ground um, among teams that work on very different issues. And we also try and find common ground between different types of work. The associates and the senior managers would hang out together in those meetings. Obviously, we try to meet as often as we can in person as well. Um, Human Rights Watch is, become, is an increasingly environmentally aware organization, not as environmentally aware as we should be, I think. We should be more aware, but nevertheless, we, you know, we, nevertheless, we do travel quite a lot and we do travel as well to have meetings in person because we think it's, it's important to make those personal connections. I was just in Turkey a couple of weeks ago and we had several teams coming together because Turkey is a great crossing point in our region. And we had some really intense, great, useful meetings where we planned our work for the next year you know and that's really valuable time together so those are some of the ways that i lead and i direct so when you're talking about the ways in which you lead and you direct i have to say it's really heartening to me it sounds like it's a highly motivated team it feels like it's a highly connected team it feels like it's a really supportive environment and knowing you as i do 
I can only imagine that has something to do with just who you are as a person and the way you interface with others. And that's so critically important because the work that you and your colleagues do is desperately difficult. And at some risk, I'm going to try to get you to talk about it a little bit. So I guess I just wonder like what you do when the totality of the indignities with which your colleagues interface, just it takes a toll on their work. Yeah. Like how do you support your colleagues in light of the trauma that they see and experience? It's actually something which which we've always been aware of. Even you know, when I started twelve years ago, it was an issue in the organization because the nature of our work means it's traumatic, literally traumatic. It makes it causes trauma and sort of it's an awareness of how what to do about it. But it's something we've actually got a lot better at and we've put more resources into dealing with. We now have two counsellors who work for the organization. They're not staff members, but they're experts who we can who give their time or pay to give time to the organization that staff can call up and make appointments with and talk through how they're feeling about the research project they're doing or generally how their their work is going. That's really important. That's a great resource to have. We've got other sorts of benefits, medical leave and so on, which staff can turn to. And we try to sort of make that make the the barriers or the sort of the hurdles for that as low as possible and try not to stigmatize it at all or not try not to, you know, try to remove any sort of sense of, you know, guilt that you're doing that because there's also in this field there's a bit of a culture or there can be a culture that you've got to be strong you've got to be tough you've got to be able to 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 push through on these sorts of things you know and that's changed that was a bit more the culture when i joined human rights watch and now i think it's really changed there's really much more of a culture of we have to support colleagues and we have to recognize that this this is tough work and that people go through difficult phases um, and that's, you know, we can't be so hard driven that that's not acceptable. Burnout and things were always happening and they were accepted and, and colleagues were supported, but not not as explicitly, I think, as, as it is today. So that's part of my job to try to recognize that and try to support colleagues um, in doing that. But also the colleagues are very motivated themselves, you know, and they want to do the job. So it's also about trying to get them to have a good healthy work-life balance to take their time off to have weekends and evenings and not work 24 7 so there's also that side of it as well to sort of try to make people recognize it's a marathon and not a sprint in terms of this work because also colleagues are juggling a lot of different things you know not only juggling between private life and work but also within work they're juggling between reacting to crises something happens in their country and they have to react quickly. Well, at the same time, they've got this long report they're trying to write. And they've got media people ringing them up and trying to do interviews. They've got our multimedia team wanting to make a video with them. You know, they're juggling different sorts of pressures every day. So I need to help them get through that. So those are some of the ways we sort of try to keep them sane, keep them motivated, and keep them sort of healthy. Yeah. Can it be hard to get highly motivated people with huge hearts and beautiful brains to 
take their foot off the gas so that they could live to fight another day? It, it can be hard. Yeah, really, it is. It is. Um, you know, I try to we try to set an example. I try to you know by taking holiday and by you know not answering emails the whole time. You know, <laughs> and just simple things like that. Just setting an example of sort of we can work hard. We can be effective, productive, have impact. You know, without you know, working all hours. And, and sometimes it's also trying to make the point that it's actually more efficient to be, have a, have a balance, you know, work efficiently in, you know, during the day and then have a little bit of time off in the evenings or weekends and things as well. So um, people go through different phases as well. I mean, people often start and they really want to work these long hours and then they get a pattern or their lifestyle changes. They get, they have kids, they, you know, change, their life changes and therefore their priorities change as well. So we have to be sensitive and supportive of that, those sorts of changes as well. Well, I appreciate your sensitivity and your willingness and your ability to support. And if you would be so graceful, as silly as it may sound, mm. I'd like to play a game with you. <laughs> Are you game to play a game with me? Sure. Go ahead. So Hugh, it's a it's a word game of sorts that I want to play with you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to shout out a word or a phrase, and I'm just going to ask you to explore with me what that word or phrase says or suggests about your work and how you approach it. Yeah. Yep. So in your capacity as the director of the Europe and Central Asia Division of Human Rights Watch. Can you talk about what listening has to do with your job? Sure, listening is important in the research itself. Sometimes I'm involved in doing interviews and listening hard, understanding what the person has gone through, being empathetic in listening is really important. And it's crucial for, for giving that person respect and for understanding what they've been through. And listening is also obviously very important with my team as well. Sometimes people bring problems, bring crises to me. And so being ready to take the time to be non-judgmental um, and to give some support and direction, because that's what often they're coming for, is all about, you know, good listening. So far, my friend, you're winning the game. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, and these are just words that I was jotting down as I was listening to you Ooh. in our conversation thus far. Here's another word I wrote down. Creativity. What does your job have to do with creativity? That's a good one because it's about, uh, creativity is about, you know, many of the problems we deal with are intractable. You know, you know, we've talked about the problems of publishing reports and, you know, doing campaigns with governments which don't really want to have anything to do with it and don't want to, it's in their interest not to, you know, do anything about their human rights record because they have vested interest in the authoritarian government staying on because they they make money out of it. They can secure their power. So we have to be creative in what, in the sorts of, approaches we take. Now, that might mean doing a social media campaign rather than publishing a big report. It might mean publishing a video. 
It might mean linking up with other partner organizations. It might mean encouraging them to have the voice, not us have the voice, you know, helping them publish an article in their name, which we might help draft, you know, all sorts of ways of approaching a problem from different angles. That's what creativity is about in our organization. As I mentioned before, we're also becoming more technologically sophisticated. So creativity means looking at a problem from a different way using technology. In the report I talked to about earlier about Kyrgyzstan-Tajikistan conflict, we used 3D modeling to recreate a scene in a square in Tajikistan where we believe Kyrgyzstan dropped a a huge bomb on the, on the square from a militarized drone. We couldn't know that if we hadn't created this 3D model based on findings we gathered in the town square and we put that you know, through a computer software technology. So that's what creativity means also in terms of maybe writing, brainstorming, working in a team, you know, across the organization as well trying not to be too siloed in the way we think about problems. That's all what creativity means to me. For round three Mm. of this game, we have another C word, confidence. That's something, confidence is something we have to often nurture in in the team. Um, People come to us because they're passionate and they're motivated and they get the job because of that. Maybe they're experienced lawyers, human rights lawyers, or they um, have worked for human rights organizations for a long time. But sometimes there are areas where they're not so confident, you know, perhaps in, in, in the media, talking to journalists is an area where we need to reinforce their confidence. So in a way, being a researcher for Human Rights Watch, you need to be confident in a whole range of different areas. And it's part of my job to try to to encourage and develop that confidence um, over time. You know, um, I've got several members of my team who, at the beginning, for instance, were were very shy about talking to the media, or indeed in in public speaking. You know, we do quite a bit of you know fundraising in Human Rights Watch. The researchers are often the public face of Human Rights Watch to the funders that give us money and support us and. We need to present our findings in a confident way, in a way which is persuasive for people to give us donations. And that's something which can be taught. And it's something which I, you know, I think I'm reasonably confident in doing these sorts of range of activities. And I help build their confidence as well to be sort of all round professional, you know, human rights experts and and presentable in terms of these different areas. Hugh, I have to tell you, you're doing splendidly at this game. By, by my tally, you've earned 740 points already. This is wow. fantastic. Are you willing to play two more rounds? Okay. The other two words both begin with the letter A. Uh-huh. We'll give our listeners here a moment to think about what they could possibly be. And that moment is up. What does it mean to you to be an advocate? I mean, we Human Rights Watch uses this word in a in a narrow sense, in the sense that we, as I said right at the beginning, 
investigate, expose, change. And the advocacy part is usually the last part, the part where we take our findings and we present them to governments. We try to persuade international organizations to change. So that's what we mean by advocacy, but in a more sort of personal way, it's all about being convinced yourself and you and, and, and coming across in a convincing way, you know, that you feel you have the findings down ready, you've sorted out where they're coming from, and that you're primed. Advocacy is about being primed to to have as much impact as you possibly can to make the case be persuasive. Um, we do lots of trainings on advocacy in, in Human Rights Watch, sort of do role plays and scenarios of you know when you're in the room, what it's like, you know, advocacy in different situations and so on. So, you know, advocacy is a core part of, of what we do in terms of the sort of technical side of it. We have people who are advocates who specialize in advocacy with the European Union, for instance, or with the United Nations in Geneva or in New York and so on. That's their whole job being an advocate, but it's also something that runs through the activities of many people in the organization to, to try to bring change through persuasive arguments. Brilliant. And to wrap up this game, mm -hmm. which if you get this question right, uh, you get a lifetime of free fish sandwiches at the Saturday morning Wittenberg Platz market. <laughs> I don't know if that guy's still there. The stakes are high. <laughs> the stakes are high. I imagine that guy's still there selling fish. I'm curious as to what anger has to do with your work. Anger? That's a good question. I mean, definitely anger in the sense of being angry. You have to be angry. You have to be able to be angry. You have to be allow emotions to play into it. But because of the human rights situations you're dealing with, the abuses you're dealing with, if they don't make you angry and passionate, then you're in the wrong organization, you know, because it's what keeps you going in a sense. It's what sort of is, you know, for all the sort of professional approach we have to take that I've been talking about, there has to be something which motivates you to, to try to bring social justice that I talked about right at the beginning. And that's anger, I think. We experience anger on the other side of the table, though, sometimes as well, as I said, and you have to be able to handle their anger, you know, and know how to respond, to be calm, to sort of deflect, to not rise to it. Anger has to be a bit inside you, and it, you have to know how to deal with it on the other side of the table from the authoritarian government. Those are the two first things that come to my mind when I think about anger. Yeah. I imagine one has to have a bona fide fire in their belly to do the work well, but the wisdom to somehow navigate the flames. Yeah. Have you figured it out? We're always learning every day. And I've learned from my, my, my wonderful team and from other colleagues in Human Rights Watch as well, and those partners I've mentioned. We shouldn't forget those. You know, we, we work with local partners everywhere we work, you know, local human rights organizations, activists, religious freedom activists, and every, everybody who works in this area, having contact with them, interacting with them, being friends with them, you learn something every time you meet. And that's so it's a continual process, honestly, Dan, it really is. And a continual process, and it's so valuable to have those contacts. You never stop learning in this job. I believe you. I believe you. I trust you 100%. 
I also, as I listen to you talk about what you do at Human Rights Watch, I find it nearly equal parts inspiring and infuriating. Uh-huh. Infuriating because you have to do it. Mm. And infuriating because I'm sure you will agree the trend these days is not towards the direction of increasing human rights. Uh-huh. Right. There are democracies in eclipse. It's a bit of a slow burn, but I smell the flames. Can I get you to talk a little bit about the intersection of inspiration and infuriation as it pertains to your work? Sure. I mean, I think that's a good starting point, actually. That's sort of the, you know, um, the rise of populism in the States, in the United States and in Europe, you know, certainly impacts on, has impacted in the last decade or so on the approach we can take and the frame in which we were trying to defend human rights. It used to be the case that, for instance, in Europe, almost every government could be shamed into stopping human rights abuses in broad terms. At least you could make the case that you find things going on badly in their own backyard in a European country, the government would be embarrassed about it. Not the case anymore. Hungary is not embarrassed. Poland's not embarrassed. Italy's not embarrassed. In some ways, the UK is not embarrassed. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of proud of promoting populist policies on migration, on the way the courts are run, on women and, and LGBT rights and so on. So that's a pretty daunting context in which to try to keep that inspiration going that you're talking about, you know? Yeah. But sort of finding new ways forward is the way to to handle it, finding new allies. You know, we've stopped sort of having the idea that we can rely on, you know, just the same set of governments. You know, certainly we've given up relying, you know, strongly on the United States where Human Rights Watch comes from decades ago because they're just as much human rights abusers as as other governments think, you know, after 9-11, think Iraq and, and so on, you know. So we have to look for other other allies. You know, we've we're often also thinking about what we call the global south governments in this in the global south who may be allies on different things. You know, Brazil, South Africa, India, not really in many situations at the moment, but nevertheless, they're countries which are sort of important and powerful with which we need to dialogue and have in different situations different sort of efforts to mobilize them or to be in contact with them and discuss human rights issues with them. So I think keeping that perspective that things are tough, but you need to keep finding a way through it is the, is the way to, to not get depressed, not get dragged down by it, but by keeping your head above water and seeing that there is a core support for human rights. And, you know, we've talked a lot about governments in this conversation, maybe not enough about ordinary people and people who stand up for human rights. Human rights are a universal thing, and people understand that. You know, they have a gut feeling that they embody human rights, and therefore they need to stand up for them. And there's a, you know, we can rely on that, I think, as being a, a bedrock of our work. You know, we're less of a sort of mobilizing organization than, say, Amnesty are, but we 
nevertheless, we sort of also rely on public support generated through publishing our information, getting big media coverage, um, social media campaigns, other sorts of campaigns to mobilize that public support. And that keeps us going as well. So that's how we sort of try to see through the darkness of, of populism, for instance, and to, to, to other areas which are more positive and more hopeful. So, Hugh, I, I, I totally agree with you that it's critically important for us to not just look at what governments can do and what NGOs can do, but you know, look at what regular people can do to monitor, to mind, to advocate for human rights. I also take a lot of inspiration in your thoughts, as it were, about inspiration. And I know that a lot of the work that you and your team do, it's difficult work. It's dramatizing work. It's grinding work. But I also want to imagine, at least, that there are good days at Human Rights Watch. And if I'm right about that, <laughs> and I really <laughs> hope that I am, I, I guess I hope I could get you to talk a little bit about what a good day at Human Rights Watch looks like to you. I'm one of those people who are very lucky by, I don't know, every day is different to Human Rights Watch. You really have a different combination of things to do and experiences. And in that sense, many days are good days because you know, a bit unpredictable. On the other hand, routine is also good. I mean, I like the fact that I have to very regularly, um, first thing in the morning, I'm checking in with my team in Ukraine. Um, you know, we do every day in the evening and in the morning, we do security check-ins, making sure everybody's safe. You know, there's, there's often bombing raids by Russia these days on Kiev. To, today, there was a raid on Lviv in the west of the country. So it's important to check in. And I find that, you know, it's a good thing to do. It's necessary to do it, but it's also a good routine to be in. Get up, texting, checking that the team are doing okay. Having calls, having meetings with my team is a refreshing and fulfilling thing to do. You know, seeing how people are, talking to my colleagues in Almaty in Kazakhstan or Istanbul in Turkey, Barcelona, Madrid, London, New York. is you know, you get chit-chat. You get, you know, just exchanging about how life is going in those corners of the world is nice. Um, another good thing about my, another good day includes having those advocacy meetings I talked about, not necessarily the ones where you fly around the world, but ones around the corner. You know, this week I was been in the German foreign ministry because we were asked to, to do a briefing for the new German ambassador who's going to Tajikistan in Central Asia. They asked us to come by and brief him on the most important human rights aspects in the country. And we sat in the coffee bar in the foreign ministry and we talked for an hour. That's a fulfilling thing to do because you feel like your knowledge is valuable and you hope you make a bit of a difference for so that person will bear some of those points in mind when he makes decisions about what Germany does when they next meet you know, the prime minister of or the president of Tajikistan and what they say. Also, people, you know, meetings in, in the Bundestag in parliament. Today I was in the Bundestag and I was doing a meeting with a, a quite a senior SPD social democrat 
MP who is responsible for human rights in his in the SPD group of MPs in Bundestag. He's you know he's the head of the German delegation in the Council of Europe, which is the most important human rights body in Europe. So quite an important guy. And talking to him about human rights situation in Chechnya, in Russia, in Ukraine, that's fulfilling because it's a sort of again you're. You're hands-on, you're talking, you're sort of persuading, you're strategizing with that sort of person. That's a, a challenging and a fulfilling thing to do. A good day is also when I'm having an opportunity to talk to others in Human Rights Watch about common projects. You know, we try and do a lot of things together with the media team, with the advocacy team, with the legal team, and so on. It's also a good day when you're talking to partners. You know, Amnesty International here, many other German organizations yeah, who are, have human rights specialities? I like to meet with them, have coffees, talk, exchange, strategize. As the afternoon comes, I'm often busy on calls to New York. Human Rights Watch's headquarters are in New York, and we still have quite a few staff there. So, with the time zones, I'm often busy in the afternoon talking to my colleagues in 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 the states. Evenings, I'm trying not to work too much in Human Rights Watch stuff in the evenings, but sometimes I have to do that. Maybe I'm writing articles in the evening or reviewing stuff, reading reports and things, which is a nice way of winding down, you know, the day, getting ready for the next one. Yeah. That's what a, a good day looks like. You know, I have to say, all of this time you spend with dignitaries and do-gooders, uh, it's quite strange to me that you should want to spend any time with a no good Nick like me at all here. <laughs> no rubbish, Daniel. <laughs> it does seem like there's a lot of plates that you're spinning. It seems like there's a lot of opportunities. Mm. I imagine it to be hard to wind down even from a good day. Is it? Sometimes it is. Um, but, um, you know, I've been doing it for 12 years, as I said, so you find ways and patterns of doing that, you know, doing sports, going for walks, being with the family. You know, you know that it's important to be able to turn off because then you can regenerate your batteries for the following day. So you, it's also in your own interest, in a sense, to be able to find ways of doing so. So, um, um, yeah, it's sometimes challenging if things are really difficult, but otherwise it's not too, you know, not too problematic to do that. Right on. I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's not too problematic. Good. I'd also like to hear from you, and maybe this is too broad of a question, but it is a curiosity, and I hope you'll forgive it. I guess I just kind of wonder what you wish more of our listeners knew about the promise and the perils of human rights reporting? I think the one thing I would say is that to be open-minded about what what human rights issues are these days. I mean, I think many people would have the idea of, you know, people in far-off countries who've been thrown in prison, you know, um, because they've stood up against the government and maybe they've been tortured, those sorts of things, classic human rights issues but these days, human rights organizations like mine work on a whole range of issues. Um, a couple of examples, we work on environmental rights a lot. We work on the human rights issues around climate change, you know, environment-related migration. Many people have to move countries, continents, because of climate change. 
and their rights need to be protected too. So, you know, we work alongside environmental organizations in doing that, but that's an important part of, of what we do. We also talk about economic justice issues. I mentioned my team member who works on issues around poverty. We'll soon we were publishing a report about poverty among older people and single parents in Germany, where he's done lots of interviews and things and the human rights issues there. So be open-minded about what, what rights need to be protected and how we can understand what human rights are these days. We also have a, a, a new technology team which not only deals with the new techniques that I was talking about, but also how how technology can be abusive, surveillance technology, face recognition technology, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, are all topics which are very um, worrying and, and, and fast developing. And that's an area where Human Rights Watch is also at the forefront of trying to understand how our rights need to be protected. So that would be my plea, to be open-minded, to be ready to to think about how one can get involved in these issues and be mobilized and mobilize yourself and your friends on on issues which maybe you're passionate about, but you won't necessarily associate with being traditional human rights issues. Right on, man. I totally appreciate that plea. It would be the perfect note to wrap up on were it not for this fetish that you know I have for (laughs) for stories, you know, that's just how I am. And so I'm hoping you could help me to begin to drive this train into the station by sharing with me two stories, right? The story of a professional triumph and then a professional failure. But how about we start with a failure so we could end on a note of triumph? The failure is a very big picture one, I would say, Daniel, in the sense that it's sort of it's not a personal failure, but it's something which gnaws at me and, 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 you know, at the very least gets me down every day. And this is the fact that, you know, in Europe, we are in this richest continent, one of the richest continents in the world. But nevertheless, almost every day, people are dying trying to get here. You know, people are dying in the Mediterranean. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, 500 people approximately died on a shipwreck just off the Greek coast. This is an area where Human Rights Watch has been working a lot over the years, and we would really have hoped to have made more of a difference by now in persuading governments to do more about it, to send more ships out there, to save people, to save lives, and to change the way they approach this issue. But in some ways I do, you know, it is a you know, a failure perhaps is a diff- is the wrong word for it, but it's a sort of it's a feeling of impotence in in trying to change the way governments, which in some ways are very good, you know, do the right thing, but in this area do absolutely the wrong thing and don't have the policies which would try to save lives and give people safe ways of coming to Europe. It's all about building fortresses and protecting borders and building fences. And so that feels to me like an area of failure that we, we're always trying to be creative and find new ways of of saving lives, particularly in the Mediterranean. Do you imagine that that feeling of impotence that so many of us share feels less hurtful 
when you know that you're waking up every day to do the work? I mean, you 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 know you've sort of got you've have a purpose in a sense, and it does give you a sense of you know you're you know you're you're involved in in tackling you're at the front line in some sort of some way along with other organisations which are the ones which are sending the boats out or doing practical humanitarian work and so on. So you do feel you're invested in trying to change it, which is which you know means you're not entirely powerless you're not you know you're not just wringing your hands you're trying to do something but it's still as i say it still feels awful you know you just feel so you know when another disaster happens it doesn't necessarily help in that moment i would say you know yeah yeah man i feel yeah all right well i could spend some time in that space but i do want to give you a chance to turn it around and share with me a story of triumph the story of triumph takes us back to the country where you um sent, spent your hot moment as you said in in, in uzbekistan and <laughs> it's one of the sort of um one of the triumphs of, of of that country in the last few years in the you know, Uzbekistan used to be, as I said, a pariah state. And one of the reasons it was had such a bad reputation is that forced labor, so people being forced to do things against their will, particularly in agriculture, was a, was a really common thing in Uzbekistan, particularly in the area of cotton. Cotton is a national crop. Um, uh, every year, every autumn, over a million people were, were forced to go and pick cotton, go to the fields, weeks and weeks on end, often in very difficult working conditions. It was like a national mobilization. Schools were shut down, colleges were shut down, workplaces were shut down. Ordinary people had to do this um, against their will without without any significant pay. It was a scandal. And this carried on for decades. And it was only a, f- a few years ago, that, and, and, but there had been campaigns for decades, and Human Rights Watch has been very much involved in the campaigns to stop this happening, find doing research, running campaigns, talking to governments about it, talking, trying to talk to Uzbekistan about it, made little impact. Then the new government came along, as I mentioned, um, recognised something needed to change, but was still not really not ready to change things. Then we published a new report along with some partners, providing new evidence of it, the, the exploitation of forced labour. We pointed to the World Bank as being involved in this exploitation because World Bank was funding some schemes in Uzbekistan where World Bank resources were being used in in the context of forced labor, embarrassing for the World Bank. World Bank wanted to change things. They talked to Uzbekistan about it. The president of Uzbekistan said, we've got to change this. We want to withdraw the the forced laborers from the fields. We want to allow them to go back to school or to their workplaces or to go to college. And over a couple of years, a couple of years ago, this systematic forced labor ended in Uzbekistan. And it's no longer the case that that up to a million people every year are sent to the fields. It's a different system now. It's sometimes problematic, but it's certainly not based entirely on a system of forced agricultural cotton picking. And that's a pretty significant success. It would also involve companies 
boycotted cotton in um, grown in, in in Uzbekistan. So there was a big consumer element to this, and that helped mobilize things as well, which Human Rights Watch was also very involved in. I was involved in helping move that along. So I feel proud of being part of that work. Of course, at, at the front line were the activists in Uzbekistan who often risked their livelihoods to document what was going on. But groups like ours were also in the field and in the strategy rooms, working out the best way to, to take this sort of campaign forward. And we're proud of what we achieved. And it's a pretty significant achievement to have persuaded the government to stop this scheme of, of forced labor in the cotton fields in Uzbekistan. So that's my example of a positive professional achievement. Yeah, man. Well, I'm proud of you and of your team. Thank you. And I should add, I'm desperately grateful for the work that you and your team do. I can only imagine how hard it is having the chance to speak with you at some length about it today has given me a more clear insight into the difficulties of it. I'm just so grateful that there are people like you who have committed their lives to this work. That should be enough. I have one more ask of you. Would you kindly just recommend to our listeners something that somehow informs or influences or illustrates your work? And perhaps they'll check it out. I know I will. I'm going to mention a film that was very influential in my own motivation to get involved in these sorts of things. It's a film from a long time ago. I'm you know, touching 60 next year, so it's from from 1982, when I turned 18. It's a film called Missing, and it's a film about Chile, in fact. Not the part of the world I work on now, but it's a film about what happened in Chile in 1973 when there was a very progressive government run by a person called Salvador Allende, and he was overthrown by a coup, and that coup was organized by the United States or backed by the United States. Um, and it was a drama involved starring Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spasek. I watched it when I was eighteen. I was um, I wasn't a very political sort of kid, but it was I was bowled over by this film, and it had lots of elements which really touched me. Actually, got me thinking about human rights for one of the first times because it was about the injustice of the United States backing a, a very authoritarian government, military government, to overthrow this socialist government in Latin America. It was about an American journalist who had been sympathetic to the socialist government and who disappeared and was murdered, in fact, by the military junta that took over. And the story was about this journalist's dad who came to look, look for him and the journalist's girlfriend who was helping look for him as well and their sort of uneasy friendship. But this came for me at a particular moment where I was open for sort of, for being stimulated and being worked up and, you know, on, on politics. And it felt like an important film to me. So I've not actually watched it for, for many decades, but I wouldn't mind going to back to watch it again as being a sort of a period piece, but nevertheless a very sort of forceful but also touching movie 
of that particular era, bringing to life what happened in Latin America in the 80s. And it was helped put me on my path to being somebody who was committed to sort of social justice issues and to international affairs. So that's my recommendation. Missing the film from 1982, and you can find it on internet, I'm sure. I'm sure. I have to confess, I have not seen it. Maybe when you get back in town, we should, we should watch it together. Sit and watch it yeah. together. Yeah. I mean, at least one of the chief organizers of that coup didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been a subject of some consternation, the living memory of Henry Kissinger. But that's neither here nor there. Well, Hugh, it would be a pleasure to spend time with you, whether watching a film, drinking a beer, or just walking around the block. I can't thank you enough for sharing yourself with me here and now. It has been a bona fide pleasure to learn more about you and learn more about your work. You're an extraordinary fella, and I'm really grateful to know you, and I'm deeply grateful that you are on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. I really did. There you have it, my friends, my conversation with Hugh Williamson. I hope you found it edifying. I hope you have a better sense of what it feels like and what it looks like to work for a human rights organization and to fight every day to make the world a better place. I hope you find some inspiration in that, or at the very least, I hope you find real interest in that trying to promote some interesting conversations about comparative government and politics and all the themes around it. Again, if you support these conversations, feel free to show your support over at buymeacoffee.com slash Kogopod. Like I said, every little bit helps, but if you have the means to help to keep this thing going, please and thank you. I wish you all health and wellness, and I look forward to connecting with you soon.